0: Is and based on root denomination. Not a people person, select like the introvert experience to completely eliminate the welcome team, meet free great time, connect cards, and then offer hold hands with the person next to you. <laughs> next, personalize your morning by choosing the worship experience that you want. Feeling a touch of white guilt, add a minority worship. <laughs> Choose the amount of conviction you'd like, and we'll select a pastor for you. We'll let you your sermon topics, so you'll never have to attend a vision Sunday or a sermon series on And never worry again about dozing off during the sermon. With Virtual Reality Church, you can sleep as long as you want. Kids being bad in nursery? Who cares? Worried about missing a football game? Enter your favorite team, and we'll provide notifications when the game is starting. Never miss a kickoff again. Want to go forward for prayer? Well, if you selected the Pentecostal service, no! even connect your social media accounts, and we'll post for you, get credit for being super spiritual, all from the comfort of your couch. And finally, an option for people asking the question, how can I make Sunday morning even more about me? Virtual reality church. Future church plans. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that exists. Of course it does. Well, good morning again, everyone. And uh, I love that video. I'm sure that none of you wrestled this morning with whether or not you were going to go to virtual reality church. But that is just plain old-fashioned satire, isn't it? Uh, Satire is where we use humor, irony, exaggeration to expose something, right? Right? to reveal something, and John Chris, the comedian there, is using it to expose something that tends to be unhealthy in the local church. You caught the line at the end, didn't you? How can I make Sunday morning even more about me? Now, no one walks into church on Sunday morning and says to themselves, how can I make Sunday morning even more about me? It's not so much something that we actively do, but it is something that we do with our actions, our thoughts, and our behaviors. Uh, We become self-focused, and that's a problem. Uh, That's a problem that many believers struggle with. It's called being preference-driven. I view the church as a buffet line, I go up to the counter, I take the things that I like, I put back the things that I do not like, and if this buffet line no longer serves my personal needs, well, hey, I go down to the next buffet line, waiter, check please. Well, friend, if we treat the local church like this, then we are participating in the downgrading of the church. Why? Why? Because Jesus didn't form the church for the purpose of giving you and me what we want. He formed the church in order to accomplish God's eternal purposes. The church is God's compelling community. It is a gathering of us, and together we accomplish God's supernatural work as God's spirit powerfully works in our midst together. Which leads to a very important aspect of church life. If you have a bunch of people together, and if church is not all about me individually, well then how do we all stay on the same page? You ever ask yourself that question? Can't we all just get along? How does the church work together? How does the church live together? How does the church stay together? And maybe you've lived through the horror show of a church devouring itself. You've witnessed that firsthand. It's never a pretty sight. So, the big question that we have to ask ourselves if we're meant to be others' focus and if we're meant to come together in the church, how do we stay unified? And that we're going to see this morning in our passage, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Let's read the text together. Paul says this I therefore. who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given. Oh, let's stop there. Let's stop at verse 6. Now, let's look at this passage for just a second. Um, we'll stop there at verse 6, and we're going to work our way backwards through the text as we ask ourselves the question what is church unity, and how does church unity work within the church? So, the question what is church unity? Well, I think we can clearly understand that unity is a root word of a bigger word, right? Community. Unity is a root word of community. What is Christian community? I I would submit to you that there is a difference between Christian community and any other type of community that we experience. Christian community is meant to be supernatural, whereas any other type of community that we experience, well, it's, it's natural in orientation. What is natural community? Well, natural community is where people come together and they associate around certain commonalities together. That's why single mothers tend to find one another and relate to one another. That's why 35-year-old nerds somehow find each other and play Pokemon. And I'm not judging. I'm not. I'm just saying, we naturally gravitate towards the people who make us feel comfortable. This is why we have to be careful inside of the local church, we can manufacture community. And then we can say, "God did this." When in reality, it's just uh, something that people naturally do. In fact, I would tell you I would submit to you this when... The church tries to build community. When we go about the building process, we tend to create natural community. Uh, You can be in church environments where everyone who's together is around the same age range. It's the 20-somethings church or another church environment where it's all kind of socioeconomically related. So everyone has some kind of uh, commonality that brings them together. That's the problem, friends. We can't build the church. We can't build the community of the church. Only God can. He's the one who uh, supernaturally brings us together. And when we build the, the community around the natural things that tether us together, well, it doesn't say anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does the gospel tell us? The Bible says that God gathers people together who were totally out of sync with one another, and he unites them in Christ. We see this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That doesn't sound like natural community to me. That sounds like God taking disparate groups with irreconcilable differences and supernaturally bringing them together because he has radically altered their world. That, my friends, is gospel community. You see, when we venture out... On the endeavor of creating community, we do what Kimo said. We create cliques. We make groups that are hard to penetrate, that if you can't kind of associate with the common denominator, then you really don't have access to those relationships. God, on the other hand, he creates koinonia. Do you remember that word koinonia? The, the root idea of it is common And so when you envision the fellowship of the local church, we said, think of like an open access, park-like area. Come one, come all, bring your oddities, bring your diversity into this place and be united together. Well, how does that happen? How does that work How does God supernaturally do this? Well, Paul explains that in verses 4 through 6 with those seven ones that you see, the one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord who is Christ Jesus, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all. Now, notice within those seven ones, That the Trinitarian God wraps us up within his own triunity. Let me say that one more time. The Trinitarian God wraps us up within his own triunity. That's what creates unity. You see, the, the seven ones are basically threefold, since the unities all allude to the three persons of the trinity, The remaining ones, body, hope, faith, baptism, refer to the church's relationship with the Spirit, the Son, and the Father, Now consider all three of persons of the Trinity, and we're just going to kind of work backwards a little bit. Uh, That's the normal progression of how the Trinity is spoken of in the New Testament. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So you can envision it like this. The Father creates one family. The Lord Jesus creates the one faith, one hope, one baptism. The Spirit, one Spirit creates the one body. So what does this tell us about church unity? Well, first it tells us that the church is unified because we are a part of God's family now. You know, when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible tells us that you were adopted as a spiritual son into the family of God. So when you walk into the local church and we say the church is a family, we mean the church is a family. Right. It's not like a family. It is a family. Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 6, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We can all cry that together as God's children. And get this, like a family, the church has its brats. The church has brothers and sisters that can't get along. And we have the propensity to step on one another's toes, but we'll get to that more later. The church is also unified around a message, a hope, and the transformational work of the gospel. There's a false form of unity. The false form of unity throws truth out the window. Uh, we just come together for no real major purpose at all, just for the sake of coming together. But the Bible talks about a unity that is grounded In truth, the Apostle John tells us this We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the Word of Life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us, and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father. And then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you have, what? Fellowship. Fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the fellowship of the local church is contingent on a mutual belief In the historic gospel message. And I think the word historic is very important there. It means that Jesus actually lived in real time and space, died on the cross for your sins physically, and rose bodily from the dead. That's what John's saying. I saw it, I heard it, I was able to physically be present when it was happening. We believe in a historic gospel message. Paul tells us that the gospel most simply is broken down like this. He says, Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. So we've been looking at that, haven't we? We've been seeing that God foretold the coming of Jesus and in real time and space, Jesus came and he died and he rose again from the dead. And if we believe in that, the Bible says you will be saved. That's the gospel. Christ died. Christ was raised. We, the church, have believed that message and we have a fellowship around that message. There is one Christ. There is only one faith. There is only one. One hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one baptism because Christ functions, uh, baptism into the body because Christ functions as the one head of the body of Christ. Another thing that we see the church is unified by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know, if you find yourself walking into church and saying, Boy, we are experiencing unity. You should thank God. Because God's Holy Spirit is supernaturally working in that place. Ray Stedman makes this important point. He says, The strength of the church never comes from its numbers. This is a mistaken concept that many Christians have today. It is the Spirit that is the church, and there is only one Spirit. He is the same everywhere, no matter where the church exists, in every place, in every age. That is why the truth remains unchangeable. The passing of time does not change it. That is why the church is not dependent on many or few or on the wisdom of its members. It depends on one thing, the one Spirit. And that one Spirit incorporates us into one body. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 12:13, for in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Now think about this. Think about a body for a moment. A body is not formed. A body does not come together by sewing different appendages and parts to create that body, right? Uh, If you do that, you create Frankenstein's monster. And this is the point that I'm trying to make this morning. Did you get that? When we try to create community and make unity happen, we make Frankenstein's monster in the church. I don't want that. I want the natural way a body forms. A body forms through a single source, a single origin. And then it begins to multiply and divide and it grows into a mature body. Every cell of that body, every part, shares in that original life together. The parts don't create the body. They receive life from the original cells. So here's the big principle about unity. The church does not create unity. Unity already exists, and we receive it as a gift from God. Now, there are certain practical realities that we're asking ourselves as we think about a statement like that. What are those practical realities? Well, the big question is, why do we experience disunity in the church then? Why does that tend to happen? If we're not responsible to create the unity of the church, then how is it that we can somehow disrupt, downgrade, even destroy the unity of the body of Christ? Well, let's think about this, and I think you know it. Even though the church is full of redeemed people, it's also full of sinners. And the sinners are you, and the sinners is me. Sin is a destructive, disruptive, separating force. Within our own flesh, we have to fight against that tendency. Not only that, But there is an enemy who hates God. Therefore, he hates that which is precious to God's heart, his church, his people. So what do you think uh, Satan's primary goal is for the local church? He loves when we fight. He loves when we get bitter. He loves when we get jealous. He loves to see the church that is meant to be unified around the gospel message eating one another up. Galatians five fifteen. So unity is very important. It's very urgent in Paul's mind. Ephesians four one to three, he tells us this. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There's always two realities with church unity. There is the invisible reality. That is the church unity that God sees. And then there is the visible reality, which is the church unity that we see, and get this, the world sees. You see, God, when he is looking at his church on Sunday morning, does not care whether or not you like contemporary music or hymns. He doesn't necessarily care about that particular program that you have an affinity toward. God, I don't think, really cares if you're a Baptist, and can I say that here, or a Lutheran, or a Presbyterian. I think there are important distinctions there, sure, and we can talk about those. But when God looks at the local church and he sees the people of the church, he sees his blood-bought children. What does the world see, though? Well, the world either sees a group of Christians who are united as they gather, or they see people that are just acting up. Basically, like what people do anywhere they go, right? Paul says that the church's job is to maintain its unity so that the church can function as the church is supposed to function. If you're in a local church and it's not growing, for example, there might be a unity problem in that church. Disunity is like an autoimmune disease in the body of Christ. It's one part of the body targeting another part of the body and making that the enemy. A unified church also doesn't reach the unchurched people as it could and should. Why? For one thing, the church is too busy being a narcissist. It's thinking only about itself. It can't stop looking in the mirror. For another thing, the people on the outside of the church, they look at the pettiness and they say to themselves, who needs that? I don't want anything to do with that. I I can go down to town hall and find that. When the church comes together in unity, it is as if we are putting paint on the invisible Christ. John 13:35 By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see when people see a unified church that says a lot. They're walking in darkness They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know who Jesus is from any other spiritual leader. As far as they're concerned, all of those things are hitting them all at the same time. And it's highly unlikely that someone living in the world in our secular age is going to go on the internet and find Lee Strobel's case for Christ and do a comparative religious study and come to Christ that way. It happens, don't get me wrong, But probably the most powerful demonstration of who Christ is, is the local church functioning in unity together. When people see that, people start coming to Christ. So how does a church do that? How do you eagerly maintain the unity? Well, let's identify first and foremost Uh, some unity destroyers. What are the unity destroyers? I'm really glad you asked that question. It's a great question. Unity destroyer number one. Sins of the tongue. If you ever lead a statement with, I probably shouldn't be saying this. Stop right there. You know you shouldn't be saying it. Jerry Bridges in his book, uh, The Respectable Sins, was sharing how when he was writing this book, he would go around with mutual friends and acquaintances, and they'd ask him, Jerry, what book are you working on right now? And he said, well, I'm writing a book right now about those sins in the church that we tend to kind of let slide, that we tend to uh, uh, accept within the church. And he said almost without fail, someone would roll their eyes and say, oh, you mean like the sin of gossip, right? Yeah, we mean like the sin of gossip in other sins of the tongue. Bridges shares, in this category we must include lying, slander, critical speech, even when it's true. Ooh, Harsh words, insults, sarcasm, and ridicule. In fact, we would have to say that any speech that tends to tear down another person, either someone who we are talking about or someone we are talking to, is sinful speech. Does that happen at Osterville Baptist Church? You better believe it does. How often I don't know when, where, why. I don't know, though some of it gets back to me. But I do know this. It is never helpful. It is never good. It never does anything for the church other than hurt the church. Can you imagine... If we jumped into a time machine, we go back to the Solomonic temple building process. And they've just finished building this first temple of Israel. And they are celebrating, they're anticipating Solomon is sacrificing thousands of animals as he is just anticipating the coming of God's presence into this temple building. And then it happens. God's Shekinah Glory comes and fills that temple. And you are overwhelmed. You've never experienced the presence of God like this before. Well, in the midst of all of this spectacular display, someone comes up to the temple with a blunt object in their hand, and they start whaling the stones of the temple with a sledgehammer. What do you think would happen to that person? Well, do you remember what Paul said last week? He said in Ephesians 2.21, we are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord. What am I doing when I am gossiping about another Christian? When I am being critical of them? When I am slandering them? I am essentially doing... That was a little dramatic, but... When a boy has a sledgehammer, of course, he is going to play. Sorry, decor team, it is beautiful back there. Now let me ask you a real question. Do you think that you can hit another living stone with your blunt words and not affect the stones that surround it? Do you think that when you do that, that the damage doesn't come back upon you as well because you are joined together with them. Ephesians 4.29 tells us, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who Hear it. Not only does sinful speech hurt the church, but preference driven church membership destroys unity. This is when the, the church becomes inwardly focused. This is kind of how we started off this sermon, wasn't it? Uh, we walk into church and we say things like, as we walk away, well, I didn't really like the music today, it just wasn't my thing. Or, you know, the preacher, he had me for a little bit, but he never tells good jokes. Or, you know, the church or the leadership, I shared this, and they just didn't want to do what I wanted. Preference-driven church membership. Tom Rainer, in his book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church, identified ten dominant behaviors of a preference-driven church. He said these things tend to happen when the church starts getting all about itself, becomes narcissistic. Worship wars, one. Two, prolonged minutiae at meetings. Three, facility focus. We would rather invest our dollars and our resources in the building of the church rather than those who are outside of the church. Don't get me wrong, our prudential committee is awesome. We need to invest funds into this place. We should not neglect it. But that is not our mission. This is a tool, and we use it to gather and worship and to send. Program driven. When we view our favorite program as sacred instead of as a means to doing ministry, you know, if a program is no longer effective or if it is a drain to the overall corporate mission of the church, it should go. Five, inwardly focused budget. All of the money of the budget goes to our needs. Six, inordinate demands for pastoral care. Now, you guys are really good. You don't um, have some weird expectation in that arena, but that can happen. My big toe got hurt. Where was the pastor? Seven, attitudes of entitlement. Eight, greater concern about change within the church than seeing God change lives outside of the church. Nine, anger and hostility. This is where a member is consistently angry. They're expressing it to staff. They're expressing it to other members. I've got to tell you, one thing that has somewhat discouraged me over the last two years is I get regular feedback from people who are serving food to members that members were rude to them. I don't get that. They're not a server at McDonald's, and don't do that to the people at McDonald's for crying out loud. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. We should be effusively thanking them for serving us. They don't have to do that. Ten, evangelistic apathy. Friends, if the reason I chose a local church has something to do with what I get from it or what my kids get from it, instead of participating with the mission of the local church, I am consuming it. And churches all across America are failing because members are consuming the church. They're taking life from the church instead of feeding life into church the church. Don't be a consumer. Be a contributor. What what kind of questions do missional members ask? Well, I think they ask these types of questions. Does this space preach the gospel? Do they preach the Bible in a way that hits the human heart and encourages me to live the Bible? Is there vibrant loving community taking place particularly i think in discipleship Uh, you should be in a thrive community if you want to be an active member of the local church is the church on mission if we're if we're seeing those things taking place in a local church set your roots in and stay there you've struck gold i don't care if they have a mcdonald's play place If you're being discipled and challenged to live for Jesus, that's what matters. How do we maintain it? Well, notice that Paul feels a sense of urgency for the unity of the church. Uh, He says, I urge you to walk in a manner. He says, verse 3, be eager. So the unity of the spirit, the sense of the passage is this, you do it. You be self-starting. You be self-initiating with it. Do it now. Mean what you do. Paul is saying that this is the opposite of a a wait-and-see kind of attitude. Like, I'll just just let that play out. Or a, a quiet passivity where we never say anything about it. It is the job of the local church member to be a unifier in the church. How does that happen? Well, he explains those virtues humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. He's essentially saying to us church is not about me. Number one, it is about Jesus Christ and worshiping him. Number two, it is about us being transformed together as the Spirit of God works in our midst. Number three, it is about us being on mission together. Did you notice how I put the vision of Osterville Baptist Church in that statement? Maybe you didn't. Maybe it was just me. We need to be proactive. Proactive. What does proactive mean? It means that when I am in the presence of gossip, I say something. I'm not a jerk. I just simply say something kind. Let's not go there. It means taking thoughts captive. It means that when I'm frustrated about something, maybe before I express frustration, maybe there should be a grid that my brain works through. That is called a filter, and it's very good for us. The main question we need to be asking is, does this please God, what I'm doing right now? Most of all, it means loving one another. Friends, love is the glue that holds the church together. Paul says that all of those virtues in Colossians 3.14, they're bound together by love. If you want to create a unity maintenance plan within a church, there has to be abundant materials within the church of love. A church that is filled with love will be a church that grows. A church that is lacking in love will, it will wither on the vine. You know, a couple of years ago, as we're closing down, uh, the elders kind of found themselves in a gridlock. Two or three meetings uh, were consumed with hours of time, but we were getting very little done. Arguments were happening, feet were digging into the sand, and it was all over this. You ready? What kind of flooring should go downstairs? Now, why the elders were talking about flooring in the first place, I don't understand. That's Prudential's committee, but i got to tell you, I had an opinion too. I always have an opinion. In the midst of the friction, we recognized that we needed to submit our Personal desires to one another and strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit instead of getting what we want. So the elders sat down together and we wrote unity standards. Here's some of the things we agreed on we agreed that we must be a united front in all the decisions that we make for the sake of the church. We agreed that even if privately we were not in favor of a decision publicly, we would support and defend that decision as if it were our own. Third, we agreed that we would never harm our unity in order to achieve our preference. And that's when God's Spirit started bringing us on the same page. No longer were we fighting one another, but now we started fighting for the same vision. And that's what God wants in the local church. i got to tell you, you're asking, well, are the elders a bunch of yes men now? And i got to tell you, they're not. But somehow, when we have different opinions, the Holy Spirit covers the distance and brings us together so that we can march in the same direction. Church member, I want to challenge you to do the same thing. Would you be willing to say with me, I will be a church unifier? Do you want to live in a church where there is supernatural things happening, not just natural community? Well, that only happens if we have a unity maintenance plan. And if you're willing to be a part of that plan, I want you to invite you to read aloud these words with me. Let's read it together if you want to be a unifier. I am a church member. I will be a unifier at Osterville Baptist Church. I did not create the unity in this church, but I will proactively seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit. I will avoid unity destroyers. I will always seek to love my fellow members. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Lord, as we think about this topic of unity, I pray that we would be a space, a place, a gathering where the Holy Spirit is leading. And uh, we do ask that you would help us to maintain the unity of this church. We love this church.